Matthew 26 today, and like I said, probably jumping around till after Easter and picking up whatever portions of 25 through 28 that we miss out on until we get through this book. So Matthew 26, beginning verse number 1, is where we are reading today again. So good to see you here this morning. And the Bible says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, you know, after two days the Passover is coming. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. But then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. They plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill Him. They said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house, Simon the leper, a woman came up to Him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. She poured it on His head as He reclined at table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world what she has done will also be told in memory of her. One of the twelve, whose name was Judas, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? They paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray Him. And the Word of the Lord this morning. You know, when you attend gatherings in society, when we used to be able to do that pre-COVID days, a lot of times it's easy to assume that everyone is there for the same reason. I mean, everybody gets together for Instance, we could say a baseball game, and they're there to watch the game. They're there because they have an interest in the two teams that are playing. And certainly a lot of people are. You see the person there with his scorecard, keeping track, discussing the game, wondering whether they'll bring in a pinch hitter or a relief pitcher, whether or not the manager will call a squeeze play or something else like that. They know all the statistics of all the players. They're there. They're watching. They're invested. They're involved in the game. And then, of course, you have the crowd hanging out, not in the seats, but rather hanging out on the concourse, hanging out the picnic tables, eating the food and playing the games that they're there And they have really no clue of what's going on down on the baseball field. Of course, my thought is always, I wish I had the nerve to go up and ask him and say, can I have your seat, please? Can I have your ticket? 
because I'm a cheapskate and I always buy the cheap tickets and I'd really like to see the game and obviously you're not interested. Well, obviously we know that baseball games are more than just a way for you to entertain yourself watching guys play a game on the field. Most sporting events oftentimes becomes a place to do business. Place a transaction. I have something I am selling you, so I will invite you to the game. I will bring you to the suite. I will give you all the food you can eat. And we will execute business while we are there. Brothers, it's just a thing to do. It's a place to hang out and to meet new people and to hang out with your friends. I mean, why go to a restaurant and pay $3 for a soda when you can pay $25 for the same soda, probably even less? Hang out with your friends, right? This is what we do. This is the course of business. And of course, look, it's not just baseball. We could use political events. Many are there in the crowd to cheer on their politicians. The politician gets up and says, I'm going to raise your taxes. And they say, yay, me. They get up and they say, we're going to do this or that. And they say, yay. And then, of course, there are those who are there to combat the politician. They want to boo and they want to heckle them. They want to cause trouble for them because they are anti that person and that party. I wonder how many are actually there because they are really trying to figure out what they believe. Seems like probably less and less in our day and hour, right? Maybe there are a few in the crowd that go to this presidential candidate and then that presidential candidate speech and they listen and they weigh the words and the evidence, but anymore that crowd is probably very, very thin. The reason I bring this up is because we have in our text three different people or groups of people, if you would. All three of these individuals, these people, have different motives, have different ambitions for their actions in our text this morning. And it reminds us, this passage does, of the need to look at and examine our own hearts and our own lives and to ask ourselves some challenging questions. Why are we here this morning? Why are we serving God? What are we doing here on a Sunday morning? What is our motivation for claiming the name of Christ and saying, I am a Christian. I am a follower of the Lord. What is our purpose, our ambition, calling ourselves a Christian here today. And so, as I said, we have three types of people in this crowd. My first point, the first one that we have are the chief priests and the elders. The chief priests and the elders. Gathering here around the Lord, gathering in this time of passion week. It's time where Jesus is about to be crucified. We see these guys gathering together. We read about them here in these first five verses. 
Again, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, verse 1, He said to His disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And look what we're told in verse 3, then the chief priests, the elders of the people, they gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill Him. They said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So we're picking up the story, the narrative, during Passion Week, during Holy Week. Passover is near. The time where Jesus would be crucified for the sins of the world is at hand. And the crowds are gathering in the city of Jerusalem. The epicenter, the hub of Jewish religious life. Great crowds, tens, hundreds, thousands of Jews coming back to Jerusalem, coming to the temple, coming to worship God, celebrate the Passover, offer the Lamb for the sacrifice of their sins. And here we notice another crowd that has gathered. Small crowd, who knows how many? Dozen? Twenty? Maybe even less? Who knows? crowd consisting of the high priests, the other priests, and the ruling counselors, the elders of the people. And we would notice them on that day and we would probably think nothing about it. My guess is they probably met several times during the week leading up to Passover. My guess is they had many face-to-face meetings as this was a time when they would all be together. This, of course, being the days before Zoom and FaceTime and Skype and whatever else, they had to actually meet together face to face. And these guys were gathering, but this meeting, this particular time is different. Gathering not to discuss the Passover, not to discuss the state of affairs between Israel and Rome, not to discuss the people and how things are going in Jewish life and society, but rather to discuss how do we get rid of our problem that we have here? How do we get rid of this reprehensible, vile, awful teacher who says such horrible things against us? As we talked about in Matthew 23. How do we get rid of Him? How do we cleanse our lives from this man who is causing such trouble? Don't you see all of the crowds that are following Him? Do you hear that He's healing people on a Sabbath day and He's eating corn on a Sabbath day and all this crazy stuff? What can we do? Banish Him from their midst. Now they know they have a problem. They can't really wait till after the feast. Their anger, their resentment, their bitterness has gotten to the point that they must act, they must do something. But they can't really wait till after the feast as presumably Jesus would go back to Galilee. He would go back to His home area. He wasn't from Jerusalem. He came and visited only during the Jewish holidays. But yet at the same time, if they were to arrest Him during the feast, it would cause no amount of trouble. A little ahead here on the timeline, but next week, we'll talk about why great crowds are following him. 
shouting Hosanna, shouting, blessed is He who's coming in the name of the Lord. There was many people around Jerusalem and the areas who knew of Jesus. They did not know what to do. We must figure out a way to arrest Him by stealth. We must figure out a way to execute Him secretly. Must be a way that we can get rid of this curse because he's blaspheming. Not really, he's just merely upsetting their religious fiefdom that they have. Their minds, he must be done away with. And of course, we think about these guys and realize there are many in our world just like him today. A world that is increasingly hostile, increasingly angry against God. A world where God and His ways no longer matter. And we're not asking the question anymore, what does the Bible teach or what does God have to say about this or that or the other? Rather, we are asking the question, how can we rid Him out of our lives, our public sphere? Completely. Totally. David said way back when in Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Cast away their cords from us. Live in a world that wants nothing Society that wants nothing to do with God anymore. The world is on a course to rid ourselves of any and all vestiges of Him. We don't want His rule, His leadership in our lives. Just think about what's going on in the world today. I've mentioned the last couple of Sundays about the dangers of the Equality Act, so-called. What dangers it poses to our church, poses to Christian schools, poses to religious organizations. And I cannot overstate it enough. For this to become law in our society would be a great, great hindrance and obstacle even for us as a church. Al Moeller, the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, one of the leading voices in the Southern Baptist Convention, wrote this earlier in the week about this bill. And he said, during the oral arguments for the Obergefell case, which of course legitimized or whatever, same-sex marriage, the Solicitor General Donald Verrilli, arguing for same-sex marriage, was asked by Justice Samuel Alito if religious colleges and universities would eventually be forced to allow same-sex couples to live in student housing. Really, without skipping a beat, honestly responded and said, it will be an issue. Now, Moeller said, you can bet it will be an issue. Student housing for married couples is but one in an apparently endless list of other accommodations that the LGBTQ community now demands. But note that Justice Alito's question was pointedly defined with regard to the coercion of a religious college or university. Solicitor General did not hesitate to affirm the threat against religious schools. 
And as soon as the Supreme Court mandated the legalization of same-sex marriage in that very case, the coercion of Christians and other citizens, religious conviction became an issue. Muller goes on, he writes this, the lead sponsor of the Equality Act in the House of Representatives is Representative David Ciceline of Rhode Island, an openly gay congressman who is confident of ultimate victory. Current Congress regarding Equality Act, he said this is going to be a vote that's going to be remembered in the history books and I think people are going to want to be on the right side of history. Ciceline is asked about the threat the act would present to religious institutions and their right to operate by their own religious convictions. He offered these chilling words, the determination would have to be made as to whether or not the decisions they are making are connected to their religious teachings and their core functionings as a religious organization. Or is it a pretext to discriminate? His words, Moore writes, the determination will have to be made. With those words, every religious congregation, denomination, institution is put on notice. The government will determine if your hiring and housing and student conduct and employee teachers are truly connected to your religious teaching. If you are merely using a claim of religious conviction as a pretext to discriminate. Those are chilling thoughts. Those are chilling things that we see in our world to think that for me to stand up here on a Sunday morning and to tell you that God has created man and woman in His image unique and yet God has joined us together under the beauty of marriage between a man and woman and within the confines of that marriage is how the sexual relationship must be carried out and how children should be brought into this world. For someone to say that is discrimination, throw us in jail or fine us or shut us down. What is it more than just a world that wants to rid themselves of God? Because it is true. It's not that we're sitting here trying to tell young people to deny yourself or, or don't self-identify however you want to. It's just that we believe that God created this world in a certain way. And God created the family and God told Adam and Eve to join themselves together under the beauty of marriage. It is as ancient as creation itself. To do that is to say that God has a higher moral order in our world that wants to live and do what they want to do. We want to rid ourselves from God. My guess is Representative Ciceline, Senator Schumer, and whoever else that would push this bill say, no, we don't want to shut down churches. We don't want to do anything. We want you to worship Simple truth of the matter is they want nothing to do with anyone who dares claim a higher moral authority in their life. Oh, they'll try it by stealth. 
They'll say churches are free to meet and whatever else. The truth is, when you push God out of the equation, when you deny and reject His rule in your life, there really is no alternative but to kill Him, crucify Him, rid Him completely and totally out of our society. Make no mention of God in any way, shape, matter, or form. So what the chief priests and elders attempting to do. Totally to get rid of Jesus in their lives. But it's not just these guys. Notice also the story of Judas. story of Judas in this text. We're told in verse 14, one of the twelve whose name was Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, sought an opportunity to betray him. Now what happens in verses 1-5 through is not necessarily connected. Verses 14-16 here in the story of Judas. It just happens coincidentally these guys are meeting. Sometime later, Judas connects with these guys and, and he says, I will be the one who will betray Christ to you. But we're told at the beginning here the Jewish leaders are looking for an opportunity to betray the Lord. And then we're told in this, this story of this feast where Jesus gathers with His disciples at the home of Simon the leper. And this lady comes in and showers Jesus with this fragrant oil. And look what happens in this story. Verse 8, the disciples saw what had happened. They saw the anointing of Jesus. They were indignant, saying, why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Matthew says it's all the disciples, and no doubt all of them were grumbling. But John tells us a little bit more in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 4, he says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii given to the poor? Verse 6 says, He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. We go on into verse 14 as we read. Judas decides this moment, this feast, at this celebration and this outpouring of love towards Christ. I am going to get my share, my money, somehow, some way. I'm going to get what comes and what belongs to me. And if he doesn't want to take an ointment and sell it, then I will go and I will sell him. 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave is agreed upon. Judas goes back and he gets back with his disciples. 
brethren gets back to following Jesus. But yet from that moment, he is looking for that opportunity to sell his Lord down the river. The question, of course, is there that we think about and we ask, what happened to Judas? Why did Judas do this? Why did Judas decide to betray Christ, turn his back on him and walk away? The extent of Judas's treachery can scarcely be exaggerated. The Gospels don't supply an explanation for his motives. Some have suggested maybe it was just because he wanted the money. Or maybe Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand to bring in his kingdom sooner. Probably the best argument is this, which sees Judas as growing increasingly disenchanted with the type of Messiah Jesus is proving to be. Jesus was a far cry from nationalistic military liberator. The Jews were hoping would free him from Roman tyranny. Disenchanted. Disenchanted with the type of Messiah Jesus was turning out to be disenchanted because we wanted a king who would come. Overthrow Rome. We wanted a king who would come in glory and power. King to ride in on a white horse. Crown of majesty above him. There's a man riding a simple donkey. Instead of a crown of glory and honor, he has a crown of thorns. Instead of being anointed king, he's anointed for burial, for death. What kind of king do you want to follow? It's like this. You know, if we're not careful, we can start out desiring to follow Christ and yet become disillusioned. Become so easily disillusioned by Him. We ask the question, why isn't Jesus healing the way I want Him to? We thought Jesus was a great physician, and yet here I suffer. Why didn't Christ let my political candidate win? Why doesn't God, Christ, provide me with money? Why isn't my business prospering? Why is my husband not turning out, my spouse, my wife, not being the kind of person that I thought that they would be? So many things, so many disappointments that come in our life and we hear so many times about Christians who deconvert, who move away from the faith, who we once looked up and said, if there is somebody who really loves Christ and yet walked away, they've denied Him. 
theologian, A.W. Pink, British theologian, made this point a hundred years ago. He said, how different is the God of the Bible from the God of modern Christendom? The conception of deity which prevails most widely today, even among those who profess to give heed to the Scriptures, is a miserable caricature, a blasphemous travesty of truth who commands the respect of no really thoughtful man. The God of many a present-day pulpit is an object of pity rather than an awe-inspiring reverence. If you're here and you find yourself skeptical or squeamish about the Christian God, it is possible you're rejecting a miserable caricature, a God concept that properly evokes more antipathy than awe. One dear friend rejects a God who allegedly told his cancer-stricken dad who refused all medical services and bank his survival instead on a guaranteed healing miracle which never comes. Another friend rejects a God who denounces her scientific curiosity as an unpardonable sin. Others reject a God who cared nothing for broken people, but only about the cold letter of the law of rule enforcement, the cosmic guilt trigger, poised with thunderbolts or worse, a cancer diagnosis at the first sight of a moral infraction. Simple truth is, if we're looking for a God that can just meet our needs or we're looking for a set of rules that we can follow and impose upon everyone else, if we're looking for a God who fits into our mold or our shape or our fashion, you are missing, missing what Christ is really all about. The simple truth is we, the church, will fail you. I will fail you. And it may even seem that God Himself will fail you. Let me challenge you this morning. Before you walk away, before you betray Him, before you become like Judas and run off, let me challenge you. Come again to the cross. Search the Scriptures and see if He has not done more for you than you can even ever imagine. That song we used to sing says, He gave His life. What more could He give? Oh, how He loves you. Oh, how He loves me. Oh, how He loves you and me. fact is, you may go and chase this world, but the world is going to let you down. You may chase your own passions. They are going to let you down. Before you run away from God, before you're willing to walk out on God, remember the words of Peter in John chapter 6. Crowds are following Jesus. Why not? He's giving away a free lunch. I'd go too. Jesus looks at him and says, to really follow me, you must not eat the bread and the fish. You must eat my body and drink my blood. 
Crowds turn away. I don't want any part of that. Jesus looks at his disciples and said, are you guys leaving too? And Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe, we have come to know you are the Holy One of God. There is no other one. There is no other name. There is salvation in nothing else but the name of Jesus Christ. If He has forgiven you of your sins, what more do you need from Him? He has given what nobody else can do. So we have a high priest, the elders, Judas. Finally, we have the woman. Woman with the alabaster box. The heroine of the story, if you would. A woman that Jesus tells us all over the world, her fame would be known. In between the story of a conspiracy and a plot to betray Jesus lies the story of a dinner that takes place at Bethany. We're told it's at the home of Simon, a leper, a man who no doubt was formerly a leopard but was healed by Jesus. And as he sits there at his dinner at this celebration, notice this incident that takes place in verse 6. Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. A woman came to him with an alabaster flask, a very precious ointment. She pours it on her head as he reclined at table. Matthew calls her a woman again. We go to John's Gospel. Chapter 12, verse 3, Mary took an expensive ointment made from pure nard, and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair. house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So here we are. Jesus is eating and Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, comes, breaks open a very, very expensive bottle of perfume. Others say it's about a year's worth of wages. I just looked real quickly. The median income in Pennsylvania is sixty-three dollars to $64,000 a year. Imagine that giving up a year's worth of income in a moment's worth of time. An expensive gift, an expensive anointing, and yet poured out freely. sake of a man who is going to die for her sins. Willingness to give, her willingness to anoint him, probably not even knowing or understanding what she was doing. Matthew tells us that she's doing it for her, his burial. But she may not even realize that. We know his own disciples had not even fully understand what was going to happen with him. Yet the opportunity to lay a little bit of herself down for the sake of the one who would give his life for her. Jesus says, the poor you always have with you and you'll care for the poor whenever you want. Jesus is not asking us 
to neglect the poor, to not care. He's not saying it's not okay, but he realizes the significance of what he has done. Words of verse 12. Jesus says, Matthew writes down, and pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. She may not have known, she may not have realized, she may not have understood the implications of her action. All she knew is that God had done an amazing work in her life. She wanted to show worship, reverence, and adoration for the one who gave his all for her. In her mind, there is no gift. There's no price. There's nothing she was not willing to do. Think about this and think about what happened to us a year and a half, a couple years ago. We woke up on that Saturday night and the youngest son was having seizure. Never happened before. We didn't know what to do. Called 911, had the ambulance come, took him up to Pocono. There, the emergency room physician said, well, he needs to go down to Cedar Crest. And there, neurologist, a pediatrician, pediatric neurologist, whatever I'm trying to say, can look at him right away if we will go. They wanted us to have him medically transported. Of course, if you know anything, once they stick the key in the ambulance, the bill starts in the thousands and it goes up from there. If we would have known, if we would have seen, if we would have had, you know, know what we know now, and he's only had one, that was that time, and thank God, praise God for that, and it's touching him, and he seems to be normal which is not always a good thing because he's a teenager and that's whatever. <laughs> We're so thankful for that. But if we would know now, was it worth, I think, $3,500 for an ambulance to drive from Stroudsburg down to Lehigh Valley Cedar Crest Hospital? And you and I, we could have done it for, what, 12 bucks in our car? If even that, gas, probably getting a coffee along the way. Yes, it was worth it a hundred times over. And if I had to pay them, thankfully our insurance covered that. If I had to pay it, I would have paid 10 times, 20 times as much. Of course, he's worth every penny. How much more? How much more? Is the eternal God of heaven who came to this earth, who died on a cross for our sins. How much more is He worth not me just giving up a, a year's worth of income, but giving up my life? Surrendering my all for Him because of what He has done for me. It is doubtful that this woman fully understood. 
But she wanted to show her love and appreciation. And now all over the world, from Australia 20-some hours ago, whenever they met in church, to those in Hawaii that are still sleeping, and we are like, I wish I was there. Don't worry, I wish I was there too, not because of the sleep though. Those who are yet need churches like ours and churches hundreds of times bigger, churches many times smaller. No doubt her act of worship will be shared. 2,000 years ago, her love and devotion was shared millions, hundreds of millions of times over, all over this world. The question is, who are we? Who am I? Who are you? Are you the ones that are blatantly hateful against God? The chief priests and the Pharisees? Are we the ones like Judas? Slowly being turned away. Slowly becoming embittered in our heart and our soul. Are we married, willing to pour out what matters most to us? service of our God who loves gaze what matters most to Him for our sake. So as we wrap up here this morning, give you three quick things here. I won't be long. I don't promise, but I won't be long. First thing is this. We have to guard against disillusionment in our hearts. You have to guard against it. You have to watch it. You have to. Whether it's from this world, like I said, from the church, things will happen. Things will happen. Many of you are here and you've shared with stories of bad experiences that you've had in churches. We probably shared a little bit of our own story. Bad experience we had. We were invited to serve as youth pastors. It's easy. It's easy to become disillusioned. To blame God for what happens among fallen sinful people. It's easy to sit there at a funeral of a loved one and somehow shake our fist and say it's God's fault. We must understand the judge of all the earth, the creator and ruler of all things, knows what is best and what is good and what is right. If we will trust Him, His way is perfect. And maybe we won't understand in this life. Maybe we won't understand why a young person dies of cancer. Why sometimes we have to suffer with pain and heartache the way we do? But we can trust our God. Guard against becoming disillusioned against Him. The second thing we should consider is this. Our acts of charity, our acts of kindness can never replace true devotion to Christ. Our acts of goodness, our acts of mercy can never, never replace true devotion to Christ. 
I say that, most of us, probably a lot of us, if you haven't already, we'll probably in the next few days get another chunk of money from Uncle Sam. Again, I don't know how we're ever going to pay it back. I don't know what our tax rate's going to be one day. Scared to death to think about it. Someone I was reading said, what you need to do with that money is not go out and spend it frivolously, but use it wisely and pay off debt and give to charity and give to those that are doing good things. And whatever you do, it's fine. It's great if you give to the church. It's great if you give to missions work. I just want you to know that your giving will never replace your true devotion and worship to Christ. You cannot sit at home and just think, well, I'll send in a, a check and life will be good. Maybe I'll go out and I'll, I'll clean and I'll mow my neighbor's yard and, and all of that is good and needful and right. We must do that. But it can never replace our worship of Almighty God. That's what Jesus is saying. Look, He's not telling His disciples. In fact, you go and read through Acts and you read through Galatians. and Paul said that he went to Jerusalem and he talked with the, uh, with the Jewish leaders there. He talked to the disciples. And he said, look, the Gospel is going out to the Gentiles. They don't need to be circumcised. And, and all these disciples said, yeah, we agree. What we want you to do is just remember the poor. Paul said, I'm more than willing to. More than happy to. They will never replace the giving of our heart and our soul to Christ. Which leads me to my last point. Whatever we give, whatever we give in devotion to Christ is nothing, nothing, nothing compared to what He gave for us. Nothing. Yeah. Retirement account looks great. Looks good. It don't look that good. That's why I'm still here. So <laughs> You'll know when it looks good enough. I won't be here anymore, right? I can give it all and it doesn't matter. Oh yeah, that's great. Next Sunday. Yeah, next Sunday or whenever. Get another check. That's great. That's wonderful. Use it wisely, hopefully. I mean, I have to. Our house bill will be due, whatever, our mortgage payment. That's nothing. I give it all to Christ compared to what He gave to me. Jim Elliott, that famous missionary that was killed in South America, said he is no fool. He gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Giving an alabaster box. Oh, it seems so outrageous and outlandish. But he's about to give his life for us. God says, Surrender your heart to me. He gave his life for me. How can I not give him my all? Man, let's pray this morning, shall we?
Father, we come this morning. Lord, I don't come with expensive perfume. All I come is with a messed up, broken life. Middle-aged man is just simply trying to make it through this life. God, I give it to you this morning. I surrender my everything to you. I determine that I will live for you and I will serve you. Yes, God, whatever I have, whatever I have is nothing compared to what you gave. You poured every last drop of your blood there upon that cross. God, I know this morning there's probably not a lot of people that are filled with hatred and bitterness and wanting to rid God of their life. Lord, there may be some feeling a little disillusioned. You haven't moved and worked the way we hope and we pray. We want you to. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to realize you already gave us everything. You gave your son sacrifice for our sins. Lord, help us here this morning, right where we are, to give our lives back to you. Maybe we'll never be well known all across the world. This woman is being known this morning and remembered this morning. No doubt thousands of churches and Bible studies and whatever. God, maybe I'll just be to a a few small friends and neighbors and family members. They will look at us and say, my grandma, my grandpa, my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother, my co-worker is a person that loved God with all of their heart. If Lord, all I have is this church and a few people that I know around town, they can look at me and say he has a passion and a love for God. God, that is enough for me. Because you gave everything for us. Do this work in our hearts and lives, we pray. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's close here at the song of worship and praise the name as we finish our time.